0: Good afternoon and welcome to the UK Column. We have a fascinating uh, discussion lined up for you this afternoon. Uh, Debbie Evans brought together two extremely interesting people. Hedley Reese, who has spoken to us before on matters uh, to do with uh, vaccines, uh, pharmaceutical industry in particular. And today we're delighted to have a lady called Sasha Latipova joining us, uh, who has... Um, inside experience of the pharmaceutical industry and uh, what it does so Debbie I'm going to say thank you very much for putting this together I'm going to hand over to you
1: Brian thank you very much and thank you so much to Sasha who has gotten up very early in order to be able to speak to us and welcome back to Headley. And as viewers and listeners might remember, we've had a fascinating discussion with Hedley. The interview can be found on UK Column website, Molecule to Man. And we were discussing how your drugs end up in your drug cupboard. What what journey have they made from the laboratory, from where they were made, to actually inside your cupboard. So we had a fascinating discussion with Headley and a lot has come up since we've spoken last. And I know that we're going to touch on a few points such as perhaps the reason that the mRNA vaccines were frozen, perhaps they shouldn't have been. So we'll be exploring that with Headley. But I know that Headley has been working very, very closely with Sasha, who has been working within the pharmaceutical industry for very, very many years and has had all sorts of inside knowledge and has been doing a lot of data analysis, mainly on the VAERS data in the US with regards to Pfizer and Moderna. So first of all, I would just like to welcome you both. And maybe you could just, um, if we go to Headley first, maybe Headley, you could just give a little bit of an introduction um, of yourself and, and then we'll go straight to Sasha. And maybe Sasha, if you could give a, a short introduction of who you are and how you came to have all these red flags and why we're here today. Headley, please welcome.
2: Hi, Debbie. Uh, Thanks for that. Well, uh, since 2005, I've been running my own consultancy in biopharmaceutical drug development and the associated supply chains. Uh, Prior to that, I was in biotech for 10 years, working with high profile companies such as British Biotech and Vanalis. And prior to that, I spent 16 years with Bayer, Bayer, in the UK, in Bridgend, in the days when the industry was fully integrated. I'm going back to 1980, where everything was made under the one roof. And today, the whole supply chain is so fragmented, I don't think people would, would understand it. But um, since I've already spoken, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of really glad that Sasha's here, she knows So much of the inside story, I'm just looking forward to what she's got to say.
1: I'm going to hand over to Sasha because, Sasha, you know, you've given some amazing evidence at the um, Corona Investigative uh, Committee. You've been um, very vocal on all your findings. And I'd really love to know how you and Headley managed to find each other and team up together. And also, what were the red flags that first alerted you to what's going on? So. With no further ado, Sasha, welcome.
3: Thank you, Debbie. Thank you. Um, thank you, everybody, for inviting me. Uh, my background is I worked in pharma industry for uh, more than 20 years um, and uh, in various roles. I started as an analyst working for large uh, pharmaceutical companies in the US. Uh, and I uh, also then worked uh, in clinical trials um, space. I founded my own companies eventually uh, several of them, uh, we worked as contractors for pharmaceutical companies, uh, specifically, uh, running, uh, certain types of clinical trials focused on safety, um, uh, safety in humans primarily. And I worked uh, all over the world. Uh, I had, uh, 60, 70 pharmaceutical clients, um, and many of them were large ones. And Pfizer was my R and D partner twice and invested in my companies. And I worked with R and D, you know, people in research and development in Pfizer, also in in safety testing and internal labs that they had at the time. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I retired from the industry because I sold my companies, and I thought I, w- I was going to have you know great time. I, I love art. I was doing art. I, I wasn't doing anything industry related. Um, and uh, you know, in 2020, I became. Increasingly concerned, you know, I started looking into this due to my professional knowledge, uh, but I quickly realized that something really bad is going on because of the attack on the hydroxychloroquine and how it was being suppressed and completely in violation of every. Um, ethical standard and, uh, you know, even Nuremberg codes and, uh, you know, laws and regulations and ethical standards that we had in medicine. So it just made no sense at all. It's a safe drug. I knew it was safe. It was actually, they were trying to smear it with uh, the cardiovascular effect, which I, I spent, you know, a decade studying those effects and drugs. And I knew for, for sure this this product did not have that problem, especially when used, um, you know, if, if you use it for COVID for just a few days. Um, you know, so, uh, so that became, and, and, and that wasn't, you know, a, a secret, I, any professional in, the, in this area would know this. Um, so I couldn't say that they're just incompetent or they don't know something or they didn't look it up. It was right there. And yet everyone was in denial, uh, following these nonsense uh, orders and mandates and pretending like this drug is hugely poisonous when it wasn't and then and then the governors started banning it from pharmacies from the the, the fda was uh directing post uh, postal service to destroy packages if people bought it in india for example online i mean that's just it, it it just defies any logic right so so that that became a big red red flag for me right away and so around you know, April, May, I started looking. April, May 2020, I started looking more closely into this. And I eventually started uh, analyzing Weir's data because that's the only uh, database that's publicly available. I do have data analysis skills. And uh, I wasn't using anything more sophisticated than Excel. Um, but it was already very clear uh, once you looked into that data that, the, the, again, a lot of abnormal things were going. First of all, of course, the huge number of adverse events and, and deaths, that was unprecedented. We've never seen anything like this. You know, if you look at the historical various data, it's uh, 20, 30 years of it is available from all vaccines, such as around um, 99 products, I think, uh, total and dozens of manufacturers. And if you look at that data, and I did the background analysis for flu vaccines just to see how it would look over time, it looks very consistent. The um, adverse events are pretty low. And then specifically, I was looking at the um, lot analysis or vaccine batch analysis. Batch analysis uh, can be done in various because the, some, at least some of the reports um, track lot number information there is a field for for lot number and in about 50 percent of the time now we can match it to a verified lot number from cdc and that you know this is kind of knowledge after about a year of this analysis initially we didn't know uh which lot numbers were real which were typos which were and now we know cdc manipulates that data very very significantly so they just create fake load numbers, we, we know this now, uh, but at the time we didn't know. And so it was very difficult to do this analysis, but nevertheless, I was able to see just apples to apples, the same conditions for flu vaccines versus these COVID injections. Uh, we saw thousands of times higher variability, which was uh, much, even much more concerning, You know, the overall uh, volume of adverse events, that's terrible. Uh, and obviously this indicates a toxic product, but also the variability lot to lot. So each batch was was not looking like the other batch, and they should all look the same. Like if you think about any mass-produced product or medicine or food or, or beverage, they're, they're all, you know, if you if you buy a bottle of your favorite beer today, and then you buy it next day. They should not be thousand percent different from each other. You expect it to be the same. We expect the same, especially we expect the same from medicine. You know, if you buy a a bottle of aspirin today and then you buy it a month later, it should be the same and perform the same and have no differences from the previous one, regardless of which lot it came from, uh, because they all st- you know they all manufactured to a very tight standard. And when you see this data going all over the place thousand times variation. so we had some lots um, and now we have, you know, I have the verified data from CDC. These lots, you know, they some have just a handful of reports three to five, maybe, uh, and then some lots have 5000 6000 and they have hundreds of deaths as well. And so, so that is just. Nonsense. None of this. This is a huge flag. And on CDC was created to identify abnormal patterns so that the products can be investigated. So we were using it as designed for the purpose of identifying abnormal patterns. This is as abnormal as it gets. And despite, uh, you know, I I talked about it, we published, we sent letters, Uh, my information on this was used in December, um, December 2021, Senator Ron Johnson included it into his letter that he said he sent a formal um, investigation letter to FDA, CDC and all manufacturers asking this question, you know, here we identified an abnormal pattern, what's going on? Can you please provide answers to us? And not, there was no response, and he subsequently sent forty different letters to them and, and on different topics related to this, and, and they he, he received no response. So after something like this happens, I realized. You know, the, the professionals in CDC, FDA, and, and pharma manufacturers, they were not born yesterday. They, they know exactly what we're talking about. It's not possible that they don't know, don't understand, or something is, you know they don't have access to data. They have perfect access to data, uh, their, their own and also CDC and public other public data, um, publicly funded databases that public doesn't have access to. So they have data in real time, perfect data. They've seen it from the start. After the formal senatorial investigation letter goes unanswered, you have all confirmation you need to know this is intentional. So that was my conclusion at the time.
1: I just want to just reiterate for some viewers and listeners that may not have picked up on on a couple of the things that you said there because it's very important. The original rollout of the COVID vaccine or we. They call it a vaccine, but as we know, it isn't a traditional vaccine and was never intended as a traditional vaccine. Um, It was rolled out under emergency use authorization. And the only way that they could do that was if there was no therapeutic um, available, like hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. And of course, we know that they corrupted the studies in order to make them not a therapeutic, in order to roll out this um, solution Um, and what you've just said there Sasha ties in very nicely and at this point I'd like to bring Hedley back in as well if I may because Hedley in our first interview you were talking very much about the upsizing the scaling up of solutions, so you you were describing to us how things were cooked up in a a chemical kitchen um, as a prototype, as a for research and development, and then it had to be upsized. And I'm thinking, well, Sasha's just very neatly dovetailed me into that because she said that the variability all over the the, the America was incredibly. varied, (laughs) the variability was too high. So that gives me the the thought that this goes back to what you were saying with regards to the upscaling. Am I right in that?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, I always start with drugs are manufactured, they're not scientific theories. So what you get in your body is a drug that's come directly from the supply chain, and if anything has gone wrong, it could kill you, and we have numbers of episodes where people have died through adulterated materials. So, when you uh, start a, 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 a um, an application to run clinical trials, you start off with a phase one study, and uh, prior to that, you you run a phase a preclinical study to prove it's safe. So, you make a small quantity of the drug, maybe ten kilos, fifteen kilos, or ten liters, fifteen liters in the case of uh, of a liquid. And then you test that in animal models. We'd all rather it wasn't be animals, but you know, that's the only uh, uh key idea we have. And it goes off to a, a contract research organization that specializes in running these trials. They write the report, have it administered your what you've made to to animals, and they write the report then on the safety, and you get that back. And then then you that's part of what you submit to the regulators to prove the drug is safe. Now If you go into clinical trials, you then have to make more. So you might make 50, 100 kilos of the drug. And in doing that, when you scale up, you can create what's known as a polymorph. That means um, the chemical structure of the molecule changes due to the scale-up. Now, there are millions of people in the industry who know what a polymorph is and they know of the risk of scale-up. And the thing that amazes me is that no one is saying anything. So and once you've done the scale up, you then have to run more studies in animals to prove what you've made at the new scale is still safe because that's what's going into your body. Um, and then through clinical trials, phase two, phase three, and into commercial launch, there are further scale ups. Now, there has historically been a limit to 2.5 uh, Times the existing scale in terms of scale up. So you know, if you go from 100 kilos, you could go to 250 kilos for the costou pack. But anything above that, then you're not allowed to do. Basically, these scale ups have been hundreds of thousands of times the original. uh, Sasha knows we've seen the lot sizes for the original uh, emergency use uh, um, products that they use, and they're tiny. And you know they they're sort of in the in the millilitres so and and then there was this huge dramatic scale up and of course what uh, Sasha can can, uh, say more what people don't realize that Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca none of these make physically developed or make these injections they're made by contract manufacturers and Sasha's kindly shared some a leaked document of the rolling review and it shows all the contractors that are involved in this, and almost none of them have been inspected, physically inspected by the regulatory authorities. Um, we know two have. One was Catlin Pharma Solutions in, Blo- in, in Bloomington, who do the um, Moderna uh, mRNA, and it was a horrific inspection. You know, they issue what they call a Form 483 when they've done the inspection, and there were 12 observations and 18 pages of specific examples where they found things were going wrong. It's unbelievable. In normal days, that plant would have been shut down until there was remediation. Uh, there's also a company in Germany, which I read or something, something like that, which had a, a, an FDA inspection, I think in April, and that was similarly horrific. You know, things were going completely wrong. I'd, I, this is in my sub stack. I, I write as I find out about these things, it's in my sub stack. And, you know, we both Sasha and I now share these things. And, and the main thing we need to understand is the contractors are on a fee for service. So they get paid no matter what happens. Um, and the drug, the companies uh, sponsoring the clinical trials or holding the license or emergency authorization. They are responsible for everything that goes on in the supply chain, for every contractor, they hold full responsibility. But in theory, they are the only ones who know the full story, who know the the chemistry, manufacturing controls, the the safety and the clinical aspects. And then they have to sign agreements with their contractors, what they call quality and technical agreements, which tell the contractors exactly what they have to do, and it takes months just to negotiate agreement
1: it just ties into everything that i've heard you say in previous um in your previous evidence and i mean really i know that our viewers and listeners are going to be maybe bogged down in some of the technicalities but what i've heard you say and i just want to sort of echo it back to you to make sure that i heard right was that what you found out is that these injections or at least the pfizer and the moderna ones which you've been looking at particularly seem to be toxic by design and the batches would be completely different so some will be more toxic than others some will cause more injury than others and i know that you've been tracking them around the united states and you've seen that there is certain toxicities have been sent or have been reported a higher toxicity in certain states am i Mm -hmm. right in thinking that this is Almost regulatory and manufacturing fraud, or is that too strong?
2: Um, Absolutely, this is fraud. Uh, uh, You know, if you uh, develop a a drug 10 times faster than it's ever been developed before, then it has to be fraudulent. You have to avoid all the safety regulations. You, you think, you know, we've got health and safety regulations here in the UK. You think back to the days before that, and there used to be a very high incidence of accidents because, you know, the companies didn't have proper guidances on risk assessments and all the things we're used to today. Well, this is what the industry has effectively ignored, the health and safety that based you know, the regulations, the things that you have to make sure that you have standard operating procedures, you have a quality system and you have, have all these controls so everyone knows what they're doing. In this industry, um, in the US, it's a bit different. In the US, they've got what they call CGMP, which is Current Good Manufacturing Practice, which is a set of regulations. It's it's law, it's part of um, uh, Code of Federal Regulations, Title 21. And, you know, they're, they're legal obligations of companies that are manufacturing drugs. In the U in in Europe, we've got a, in addition to good manufacturing practice, we've got good distribution practice, which which speaks to the supply chain, the temperatures you have to hold the product up, what you do if you get an excursion outside a, a range that a, of the specification. All of that has been ignored, totally ignored. And you know, I I I I won't say any more on it. But obviously, the evidence is so compelling uh that you know it's
1: a no-brainer sasha can i can i bring you back in now to just give us a i mean honestly it really does look as that there was an intent to harm here a deliberate intent to harm with these injections what what are your thoughts on that
3: yes i i, I agree that's that's exactly what i found i found uh in that the acts were intentional very early on by as I said, you know many, many examples where uh, the it, it, it was the the regulators themselves even admitted that they knew about these injuries but were not willing to do anything, so it, it, no no stopping no investigation. So ultimately, you know just to to make it a little bit shorter so i can say that absolutely no regulations are followed for these products no good manufacturing practices are followed and Headley brought you know several good examples of the what these companies found in huge violations of them and nothing is is done they just you know they write up the findings and uh, and the manufacturing proceeds as as before um and uh so what i found ultimately is that yes it was by design yes it was intentional In the US, um, you know, there are different other ways in in other countries, but in the US specifically, this was done through changing legislation over time. It wasn't done in just 2020. In 2020, they just switched on the system. But um, starting from around 1997, in fact, that when they they introduced the legislation for emergency use authorization, that was the first step. Uh, And so that that legislation allows uh, FDA to just put something on the market without any testing so put put something on the market without following really any uh uh, good manufacturing practices or good clinical practices or even collecting any clinical data just saying here you can use it because you know we say so because it's it's emergency or some panic or something but yes you're correct the only condition for that was that they had to prevent any other option and we knew there were all sorts of really good options as treatment for COVID, but they just went ahead and suppressed them. So that was the, the, the crime number one, uh, that they did that. Uh, But emergency use authorization is a key piece of of, uh, uh, regulation that allowed them to do that. And the second key was uh, structuring so-called other transactional authority. So this is a way for Department of Defense in the United States to contract with private manufacturers. Uh, And uh, that goes back, I don't recall exactly, but something like uh, early 2000s when that was put in place. And uh, so this other transactional authority allows Department of Defense to buy military prototypes from pharma. Uh, they don't tell you what the military prototype military prototype is or what it's for. Uh, there's no standard by which you know safety or efficacy is judged because it's just prototype. And so that's exactly what um, they've done. So. Uh, the Pfizer contracts and all other manufacturer contracts that I saw, there are hundreds of them. In fact, they all refer to this uh, prototype. They're paying huge amounts of money. Pfizer's contract, for example, was $10 billion. And the scope of the contract specifically is large-scale manufacturing prototype demonstration. Uh, And they're very explicit saying that well, you need to comply with good manufacturing practices, but we are not paying for this. So $10 billion explicitly is not your compliance with good manufacturing practices or anything of the matter so i'm just i'm shortening it and then there is also an explicit way of you know they also passed several pieces of legislation to protect specifically vaccine makers from any liability and this was you know through many different pieces of legislation people are citing but the most recent one was this called prep act it's also explicit clause in these contracts that says under prep act you are absolved of any responsibility, any liability, uh, anything that, you know, anything at all, as long as you follow our orders, which is DOD. And then, uh, uh, and, and by the way, any, anyone in the supply chain uh, through vaccinators are exempt. They do not have to follow any orders. For example, if, if I am as a doctor supposed to inject somebody with something, I must know exactly what's in it because otherwise I'm liable. You know, I, somebody could, it's the same thing as like they're telling you in airport, don't don't pick up you know the bags that you don't know. Well, don't pick up the vials that you don't know and inject them into somebody because you can kill somebody. And that's exactly why, you know, I would be held liable as a doctor if I did that. Now, this. PREP Act specifically absolves them of this responsibility, as long as they follow orders and inject people with what Department of Defense sends to them. Because what people also don't realize is that these products, again, in the US, but I've, I've heard similar in other countries. In the US, they're property of Department of Defense. So throughout the distribution chain, uh, and actually it's Department of Defense is distributing them, and uh, their they're property of DoD while they're sitting on the pharmacy shelf and up to the point that they're injected into somebody the same clause that says you're absolved of everything says uh, at the last sentence it says this product is both civilian and military application so it's a military prototype which is secret undisclosed um, manufactured by a network of department of defense suppliers established suppliers Pfizer slaps a label on it. They they do parts of manufacturing, but not everything is done by hundreds of different suppliers. Uh, There's no way to know what's in it. Nobody knows what's in it. Doctors are specifically not told, but told to follow orders and then you will be protected um so that's how that's how they're doing it they're doing it through these two key pieces emergency use which absolves them from doing any regulation and then other transactional authority well and the final thing is that under public health emergency which they just announced at the beginning is remember they announced at the beginning of 2020 was public health emergency and similar announcements in other countries so under public health emergency in the united states another piece of legislation over time was put in that once they announce it which is basically just assertion you know they don't have to have any data or any justification it's just an assertion that we have a, fi- a public health emergency then the head of Health and Human Services, which at the time was Alex Azar now it's Javier Becerra, they themselves determine what, what vaccines, or countermeasures rather, should be distributed, and it's up to their own, just this person say so, based on the information that's provided to them, that may be available, but may be not available, and if it's not available, It's up to that person's decision whether this product may be effective. There's no safety requirement, no good manufacturing practice requirement, no quality requirement, nothing, not even efficacy requirement. It's if that person, Alex Azar or Javier Becerra now, thinks that these may be effective, then they can be imposed on the entire world this way. So that's how they build this cage, this legal cage. They they legalize the use of I call them weapons, because they're military productions. Um, so they, the United States government, over time, legalized the use of weapons on, on civilians, on, mili- on their own military application of weapons all over the world. We don't even know what those weapons are. We think they're chemical, biological, toxic toxins, who knows. Uh, but they made it legal for themselves. Now, it's not lawful, of course, but on paper it's legal, what I'm describing on paper is legal and that's what they're doing today. So that's why I'm saying, you know, while I investigated it and had investigated it from the point of view of pharmaceutical industry regulation and violations of pharmaceutical industry regulations, I today can tell you these are not pharmaceuticals. So what I found, I'm kind of barking up their own tree right now um you know the the the, these are not pharmaceuticals they're not supposed to be like pharmaceuticals there's no good manufacturing practices that apply to them uh the big lie is that people were told that these are medicines they're not medicines they're weapons highly toxic so that's what people should be aware of and and you know all we can say right now stop using them this is the only lever that we have is making public aware of this legally it's a big uphill battle to try to change all this and do all this, uh, but uh, what we can say today: just do not use them. Uh, say no, protest, protect your children, protect yourselves. Do not, if you if you got any injections, don't get any more. Um, this is uh, this is just you know the, 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 it's, it's it's United States Department Department of Defense deploying weapons on you. Um, that's all I can tell you right now.
1: I'm like taking a breath because there's so much there. I don't even know where to begin. But um, I think one of the things you said with regards to the the minute anybody says the word military, you know, the the red flags go off in my head and I think DARPA And I've been very interested to be watching Dr. James Giordano and many of our viewers and listeners will remember me speaking about Dr. James Giordano, um, who's head of the European Brain Project. Um, He's involved in the Pentagon, DARPA, a very senior neuroscientist who's actually been lecturing about what you've been speaking about. It's almost as though his lectures have become reality, which I, I believe that they have. And, you know, we, here we have, um, and I, I, I have to agree with you that I believe that these are bioweapons as well. Um, we have these injections w- where we have no efficacy, <laughs> we have no safety. I mean, safety seems to have completely gone out of the window. Um, and I know that while you were looking through your data and, and you were analyzing everything, you found something very interesting um, in Orange County back in 2021 um, with regards to a lot of Moderna, I believe. Could you tell us about that, Sasha?
3: Yeah, that that was another confirmation that this was intentional early on, because remember, the large scale rollout happened uh, in late December, early January 2021. And then just two weeks later, like January 18th, um, there's uh, uh, a lot of news articles you can find and I, I found and even on CNN, they reported that Orange County, California Health Authority detected uh, a, a substantial number of, they called it allergic reactions, uh, from Moderna lot and they gave the lot number. Uh, and uh, and they said, oh, we, we're pausing injections from this lot and then you know a few days later they said, "Oh no don't stop in you know don't stop any injections at that time at least they they made this news article and then I looked at it later um and there were no action after this so the the slot was not recalled uh the lot continued to be uh distributed all over the United States, and it ultimately generated over uh three thousand uh adverse event, like thirty five hundred adverse events and uh, about sixty deaths in the United States. Uh, this is outrageous. Remember that um, the um, swine flu vaccine was removed for something like 50 or 60 deaths entirely, not, in, not just in one lot. Uh, but here we have the health department de- detects the problem. Then nothing gets done. It gets continued to be sold. It results in 60 deaths. Uh, that's just by bears, We know that it's undercounted, but it could be up to you know, 100 times undercounted. And that's been shown in, in scientific studies. So uh, so that, at that point, I knew it was also I knew it was intentional because it, it cannot happen like that. If this is a normal product, pharmaceutical product, the manufacturer will recall it themselves because uh, all manufacturers of any mass produced you know, medicines, foods or, or, or beverage, they all have internal systems to monitor their own safety data. And if they detect something, they will issue a recall. Most recalls are voluntary because manufacturers don't want to hurt or kill their customers. That's really bad for business, but also creates liability. But uh, now that we know that these these products are completely absolved of, of any liability, are not supposed to follow any practices, that they're only declared safe by Alex Azar at that time, and nothing can stop it. By the way, his declaration is not even judicially reviewable in the US. The only way to undo it is whether is is to have HHS secretary or United States president uh, declare public health emergency over, which they don't. You know, they just extended it again, twelfth time I forget. Uh, mm-hmm. Or United States Congress issues a law that that uh, terminates it. Those are two conditions that can happen to how how we can stop this from happening. Up until then, it's Javier Biseric says no. I think it's effective, and they continue selling it.
1: Sasha, uh, a couple of things that I just want to raise, and and then I want to just also go and ask Brian what he's going to think of what I'm about to say too, because from where I'm sat, it would appear, and I know that our viewers and listeners will, will want to understand this properly, but Sasha, are we suggesting that pretty much every batch is different? The toxicity is different. So we're basically, it's Russian roulette as to what you're going to get, when you're going to get it, how toxic it's going to be, or maybe if it's even going to be a placebo, nobody is going to know because each batch is going to be different because the people with serious adverse reactions that we're talking to, one of the biggest problems and hurdles they're finding is because they've got this huge variability in symptoms. So no one can pin anything down to one particular syndrome or one particular condition. And I'm just understanding that everybody literally, because of course, we've got multi-dose vials as well. So we're having to draw four or five doses from one vial. So we can't be sure that anyone's getting the same if it's being measured correctly even. And I'll throw this to Brian in a minute, but just to clarify, am I, am I understanding that right? That it really is that variable that everybody is getting something different?
3: Huge variability batch to batch as we found in, in uh, various numbers, but obviously each batch has hundreds of thousands of vials and each vial contains, well, originally it was five doses, now it's six doses, and for Moderna it could be 10 or 12 doses, So, and those are manually prepared. So variability is gigantic. That that explains the fact that people are saying, well, I got injected, I had no side effects, and my friends didn't have side effects. If you're talking about vaccine injury, you're a conspiracist so that ex- explains it uh some people will get no effects because it was over diluted by the person at the site, the temperature wasn't controlled it, it degraded uh or it was just that you know right now they're they're cranking out lots that are six 600 liters 700 i've seen one lot of pfizer 900 liters that's nonsense it's just it's just water with with garbage in it. That's there is no mRNA anymore in it to speak of. I mean, maybe it's floating in some little because if you think the, the bigger the, the vat, the more separated the product is going to be. It's not even clear that you can produce mRNA in this volume, but they're claiming that they have. And so, in my uh, in my opinion, it's just you know that's separated. It's floating somewhere. Once 900 liters gets filled into 0.45 milliliter containers. It's completely different. So there's a bunch of them will have just water with maybe some contamination. And then some will have very concentrated mRNA. And so that would account for, you know, some people dropping that immediately right at the vaccination center. And some people saying, I've never had any side effects. So what, what are you talking about? So that's how it is. Uh, we, we cannot tell you what's in those batches. We see different side effects. We see different even, um, you know, I'm working with a bunch of people now doing microscopy and other testing of vials. And in different countries of, of the world, you see different things. So, uh, you know, we just, we can't tell you what this is. It's like a dirty bomb. Uh, it's unpredictable. So yeah, it is like Russian roulette. Just don't do it because the more times you do it, the more like even even the the 900 liter lot that I found for Pfizer, they killed one person in years with that. So it has few side effects. It has few reports for it overall. You could say, well, maybe it's safe. No, one person was killed. Uh, eight year old girl in Texas. She got two injections from the same lot, and she died. She had no preexisting conditions. It's a child, eight year old. She was healthy. She was killed by this. From multi-organ system failure, so you know, just don't do it because you know it's maybe a larger lot, but it's just a larger uh, lottery size. Um, Just just don't play that lottery. It's never a good idea.
1: Yeah, and I think what you said about, um, you know, if you have a cup of coffee from a restaurant one week and then you go back to the restaurant, you, you expect the same product and clearly that's not what we're getting. And and Brian, I just want to throw it to you because it seems to be quite extraordinary um, what Sasha is saying and there's still more to, more to say. Um, what are your thoughts?
0: In the first instance, this is explaining for me why in particular the MHRA, the uh, medicines and healthcare products regulation authority in UK simply won't engage in answering any questions about safety of vaccines in relation to its own yellow card data. So UK Column as an organisation provided a very comprehensive uh, search tool to enable the public to search the MHRA's own statistical data via the yellow card system and when when you start searching properly um, it's very clear that there's a large number of deaths and there's a very large number of vaccine adverse reactions but if we ask the MHRA to explain um, the adverse reactions and the deaths are they connected to the vaccines or not they simply will not give a straight open answer as to what their own findings are they won't say yes these are 100% vaccine created adverse reactions they won't say that nor will they say no they're not they simply refuse to answer the question and this to me was a clear sign that they had something to hide because if the yellow card data does not mean that an adverse effect was uh, created by a vaccine, then, of course, they would want to uh, broadcast that to the public, but they simply refuse to answer. And so it would also appear that this uh, same evasion to questioning has also occurred in in the United States with the VAERS data that people are, are... searching the data themselves you said you've done it by the use of Excel we know of another uh, French lady uh, Christine Cotton who, who's also looked at the data the VAERS data and says when she did it it's telling her that there's a problem and therefore you would expect the, um, the US safety agencies to respond but they're not the same thing is happening in UK and I think that's very telling so i'd I'd be interested in in your reaction to that, just as to why you think the safety agencies don't respond. And then I, I've got another question about the the military side. but what what do you feel about the evasiveness of the authorities?
3: well that's that's exactly right. I heard this from many places from Germany also, my colleagues provided that they've been trying to engage with their safety regulators and other European EMA and um, Australian and Canadian health regulators behave exactly the same way. So there's a mountain of evidence and they refuse to acknowledge it publicly. Uh, they all give you the same you know, canned uh, uh, party line that the vaccines are safe and effective and everybody should be vaccinated, but they never discuss and never engage in the discussion of the adverse events. Um, so uh, th- that, that to me, says that they were all told to stand down, that they don't have authority to speak on this. And b- based on my review of uh, how this was contracted and organized and set up and funded, it's true, they don't have authority to speak about this. Because this is, as we said, this is uh, shows by, by contracts, by how this is organized it shows that the Department of Defense is in charge of this. And this is a a Department of Defense operation, deploying weapons. And um, so health authorities really have no say in this.
0: That's uh, a very good lead into into my next question, because you've described how uh, the basic safety and procurement systems for a pharmaceutical product, like a vaccine, how all of those safety systems have been, have dropped away, they haven't been required, they've just rushed through a product. And you've then pointed out that uh, speaking in, in, in American terms, the US Department of Defense is able to uh, place contracts where normal safety requirements uh, and a whole range of other requirements uh, that a commercial firm would have to adhere to. Those Aren't required for the US Department of Defense. You've also described that the dangerous nature of the pharmaceutical product, the vaccine, would indicate that effectively it's weaponized. So we're using that term. What evidence have you got to say that the the military, military military-industrial complex? is running this vaccine program do you have other evidence that says that this has been taken out of the hands of health departments and it's been given to the department of defense for example
3: yes absolutely and they're not actually hiding it it's all available uh, through publicly available documents Uh, i uh, found them uh, through my research but they're They've been published from the start. For example, the first document that speaks to that publicly is as of October 2020. uh, There was a meeting of vaccines and related biologicals. Uh, uh, This is a meeting within FDA, HHS, uh, DOD at the time. Uh, And uh, it has a set of PowerPoint slides, which I, I saw and they've been published. And on these PowerPoint slides, there is an organizational chart for operation warp speed. the the operation that was tasked with making these products. And that organizational chart very explicitly describes that the chief operating officer of this entire organization of making, distributing, uh, administering these vaccines is Department of Defense, United States Department of Defense. They're they're at the top of the chart, although the chart is sideways, but the, the, the top of it says, chief operating officer, Department of Defense. Uh, and um, and then also has a huge top layer. Top layer of management is all U.S. government, Department of Defense, and HHS, and under public health emergency legally. And I can provide you those uh, uh, legal references. Department of Defense and HHS are merged into one organization. And in any case, they're part of executive branch of the government. So, uh, so, it, it, so but clearly it designates Department of Defense as chief operating officer has a big layer of management that's responsible for governmental management, that's responsible for production and operations. And farmers are only third level down as procurement places, although they're getting gigantic amounts of money pumped into them. And then uh, the next part of it talks about uh, uh, DOD's own vaccine manufacturing uh, um, portfolio. There's a slide on that. And on that portfolio, they describe a dozen of different uh, uh, providers, contractors, that they have set up. And they have contracts for them going at least uh, to 2012 and maybe earlier. Uh, All these contractors had been set up by the Department of Defense to to manufacture vaccines. Uh, They include companies nobody really hears about, uh, although we know about them professionally. For example, Emergent Biosolutions is one of them. And Hedley knows a lot about them, and they constantly get these forms, 483, and constantly nothing happens. They continue manufacturing. Uh, So so these are providers who are set up by the Department of Defense going back many, many years, and they're making, uh, well, Emergent is making Anthrax vaccine for them. uh, uh, But uh, also this other, all of these portfolio companies were set up ostensibly for making flu vaccine even though I don't think there was a particular shortage of flu vaccines anywhere. But for some reason, Department of Defense had to set up this infrastructure going back many, many years, uh, including what they call surge capacity to make flu vaccines. And so in 2020, they just switched them on because what happens is if you go to a, uh, let's say, imagine you go into a car manufacturer, you need urgently a million cars, new cars, and you go to Ford Motor Company, and you give them $10 billion and you say, I need a million cars six months from now, they can't deliver that because this is not just, you know, they don't have like raw materials sitting around waiting for an extra million cars. They don't have other, you know, there's a lot of subcontractors, parts suppliers, electronic suppliers, you know, tires need to be made, all of that. And even like the place to put them all, uh it needs to exist so j- just going to, to a large manufacturer giving them you know billions of dollars and asking for uh, a half a billion doses of new vaccine in, in nine months that's not going to do it and they couldn't could never deliver that and the Pfizer couldn't Def- Moderna definitely but they're not but they definitely could not they never had a product on the market so what that was it was just a front set up a Department of Defense gave them money and said go use this portfolio that we have here cranking out whatever already uh, and we just kind of pass through the money to you. And of course, they all agreed. And of course, they're all happy, you know, making billions. Um, but that's what's happened, and, and that's all, again, in public documents. And th- these contracts also exist. Uh, they're available through Securities and Exchange Commission as disclosures to shareholders. So I have hundreds of those documents, and I read them. And um, they are all, you know, they're, they're, they're describing the situation that, you know, I've just sum- summarized. So it's, it's a Department of Defense production machine that's been in place for years, has been turned on for this purpose. And pharmaceutical companies are used as a front.
0: I've got to say that the basis of the whole thing makes sense to me in as much as in any country there is part of the, well for UK it's Ministry of Defence, Department of Defence in the US, uh, which is looking after the security of the country by also uh, taking care to research and defend against biological or chemical weapons so we can we we can expect a Department of Defense will have this capability to be investigating and dealing with biological weapons. And what you've what you've then provided is this stepping stone that that capability has been drifted across into the civilian, the public health uh, system. And what then came into my mind was that in the UK, at least, and it was Debbie that picked up on this in the first instance, we started to hear about health security. So we weren't just talking about health and making people well or looking after them when they were sick. Health has now become security. And that particular uh, phrase, those two words, of course, emphasise what what you're suggesting very strongly with an evidence base, that we've, we've now, behind the scenes, started to integrate public health and a defense and military system. This makes sense to me.
3: Yes, yes, uh, for sure. And as you, as you know, uh, the same drift is happening very quickly, I would say, in the United States. The Biden administration just recently, I think in September, put out executive order that defies imagination i mean they're talking about uh the need to uh to reprogram every every human every citizen so that so the government needs to now have access to my genetic code to reprogram me uh, to make sure that you know the chinese don't get to my genetic code this is this is insane okay it's com- uh, completely insane also scientifically not possible so what, what whatever they're talking about is nonsense they are uh, just using this as an excuse to to do mass poisoning really because there are no technology i can also assure you there's no technology to accurately splice a genetic code and create something functional with it you can damage somebody, you can knock out genes by toxicities, and that has been done in practice. That's how we make um, animal models, for example, for various diseases. So that's how we make so-called genetic mice for cancer model or for some cardiovascular model that we need is uh, we just uh, poison them and then we figure out like which ones start developing cancer and that's that's the 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 breed that we will create okay and that's how they're doing it so they're, they're creating mass poisoning uh for whatever reason using the same approaches in and colonial genetic engineering or biosecurity or you know they, they throw around these words but really what's happening is just mass poisoning event uh, but yeah you're right they they they. the first of all that whole idea that the government needs to protect you from future emerging viruses that's another nonsense idea that they've propagated to pretend like we have to have this biosecurity state and the government is now responsible not just for your health and and they and you 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 just kind of like subject to that you know, they declare that they're responsible for your health and you cannot do anything about it. And then they're now declaring that they're also in charge of your genes and upgrade of your genes so that no, you know, other agent can get there. So I'm like, when, is the, when does this stop? When do they get off?
0: Debbie, you you started to alert uh, me, us, to, to the immense interest in all all things genetic and uh, you a long time ago put out the idea that uh, the testing the covid testing was also an opportunity to be collecting um, genomic data on on the population and then you've demonstrated that there is a whole raft of industry being developed just out of sight of the public the bio labs Um, whereby the British government is also desperate to have all of the genetic information on every member of the in in the country. And it was it was only a week ago, I think, that we also reported that we found it very interesting that the Bank of International Settlements, uh, the bank really (laughs) controlling all of the other uh, national uh, and and large uh, worldwide banks, had set up a hub in London, and the principal role of that banking hub was to collect data. So, Sasha, what you're describing, we're absolutely seeing here in UK. And of course, this immediately takes us into the fact that we, we can easily move beyond national governments and see these pan-national or globalist uh, organizations that are are desperate to get hold of genomic data and that includes the World Health Organization but we can also see elements moving through into organizations like the World Economic Forum so when we talk about they setting up this malicious plan to poison people using vaccinations we can quickly it seems to me get beyond national governments
3: to me that um, there is a much more coordinated effort, especially with respect to what they use in the WHO as as a mechanism to drive all these nonsensical public health emergencies uh, acts and then uh, various health regulations. And as you remember, WHO is no government. It's not represented by any taxpayers anywhere, no, uh, no electorate ever elected them in any country i i, I fail to see how our elected officials can go and then uh give away our sovereignty you know in the united states or your sovereignty in the united kingdom or any other country to some non-governmental body it's a, it's a private corporation set up for i don't know ostensibly data management and some recommendations but now they're going to Govern us, especially our health, especially you know our choices that we, we need to make for ourselves, and then and then somehow they want to have all of our genetic information. So that that just that just makes no sense whatsoever. I don't understand why people are going along with it. And this is something to watch and extensively to to uh, bring up with your. I think as far as what we can do is it's mostly local action with your local state uh, and um, uh, government local government authorities, all you can do is protect your community. Because these these large uh, governmental bodies, as you've seen, um, they've been captured, uh, such as like the health regulators everywhere, they have been captured, they were told to stand down and not do their job. Uh, And whatever is going on right now at this, you know, WHO global level, I I think we should just not go alone at all and ignore them because they have no power over. they have no real power over us and nobody can give away our sovereignty and nobody can give away our individual sovereignty as free people we're free people we're not slaves nobody owns our body by magna carta which goes back back you know the british common law which goes back to 1200s i get to decide who can touch me and who cannot that's 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 how it is that's the simplest level of looking at it and and that's my decision because i'm not a slave and therefore nobody can come at me with a needle or any procedure or mask or anything any any health-related mandate and that's how everyone should treat this you know they're usurping power as we speak and we should just not give it to them
2: Sasha that's some phenomenal digging a lot of that i knew things were bad i didn't quite know it was that bad but one thing i think people should know is about the international coalition of medicines regulatory authorities If you um, just put that into the internet search, you will find it's a body that was set up by Dr. Ian Hudson, who uh, in 2016, he was the CEO of MHRA until 2019. And he's now a special advisor to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And if you look at the previous chairs, first was Ian Hudson, the second was the the past head of the European Medicines Agency, and the current one is the head of the European Medicines Agency. And that lady has previously worked at the WHO. So, so and the WHO have duplicated regulations. They've got their own GMP, they've got... So, there's this whole duplicate organisation, non-government, you know, non, non, uh, uh, with no authority. You know, regulation of medicines is down to the competent authority in each country. And the competent authority in the US is USFDA. They have legal powers and somehow they, these duplicates through the CDC, through the WHO, through um, MHRA, who have actually spe- spearheaded setting up the, of this international coalition of medicines regulatory authorities, have a look at it because they've given themselves a mission to coordinate globally regulatory affairs. Well, i tell you, they are harmonized globally. They have been for 20, 30 years. uh, There's an organization, the International Conference of Harmonization of Technical Requirements of Pharmaceutical Products through US, uh, Europe, and Japan have harmonized all the regulations, so they didn't need harmonizing. So this body, uh, please, Google that and look at um, the International Coalition of Medicines, uh, regulatory authorities, and you'd be amazed what roles they've awarded themselves, but also how every regulatory authority in the world just about is a member. You can see them all listed there, and associates as well. It is gobsm— even more gobsmack well, it is gobsmacking. Uh, after Sasha's come out with that gobsmacking stuff, I, I was equally gobsmacked by 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 this finding. So. You know, it's it's unbelievable.
1: Two questions, really. Um, at the beginning, when all of these injections were being thrown out, um, we were told that if you had an AstraZeneca or if you had a Pfizer or if you had a Moderna, whatever brand you had, you should have the second and the third dose. There was no data on interchangeability within any of these injections. However... Shortly after that, we seem to throw caution to the wind, or at least our regulators, who aren't really regulators, apparently by self-admission, they're enablers. So we can see that they're enabling the pharmaceutical company. But all of a sudden, directions were given that, oh, well, if you had a Pfizer first, you could have an AstraZeneca, or if you had an AstraZeneca, you could have a Moderna. So my first question is about the interchangeability. And my second question, which I know that viewers and listeners are going to find absolutely really interesting to hear, is the effects on pregnant women, and especially pregnant women that are breastfeeding and lactating mums, and the data that you've seen with regards to pregnancy. So those are the two parts of my question, if you can recall those. One, the first one is interchangeability, and the second one is with regards to pregnancy and safety of this Mm -hmm. solution.
3: Yeah, so the interchangeability, obviously they had no data on it and never even planned to gather any. And uh, initially, I think they accidentally did their job and said, oh, you know, you shouldn't because that would be a health regulatory Position to take if you are truly a health regulator. If uh, something wasn't ch- wasn't tested for interchangeability, you will tell people not to interchange. Uh, now, and then, as I said, you know they were told to stand down and to not do their job, and they uh, and they went and said, "Oh, okay, it's fine. You can interchange it." Uh, and so, but but there is there is no data, uh, and but but I think really they don't care because again, it comes back to this being a weapon you don't care, you know, which brand of the grenade you deploy, you know, right? It's just, you just need to throw a grenade. Uh, so that's that's how this works. Um, so that's why they don't care. And then uh, legally, it's just up to, in the, in the United States, Javier Becerra can just say, or Alex Azar at the, at the time could say, well, I think they're effective. And that's it. That's, a, that's enough. That's the regulatory standard. So he said, oh, I think it's okay to interchange them. And so that's the regulatory standard has been met. Uh, and so so that's the answer for that. Uh, now, the, as far as the pregnancy data, it's, it's more even more sinister, and of course, because we're talking about pregnancy and babies. Um, and uh, the data had been available to the FDA specifically for since the beginning. The, there were animal studies done by both Pfizer and Moderna uh, uh, using rats, and those are actually one of the few studies that were done in compliance with good laboratory practices so we can say data is reliable uh and uh the data showed in both cases that they were toxicity to mothers to pregnant mothers uh, fear, severe toxicities such as rats were losing weight and losing fur and that you know it's a pregnant rat obviously rats eat all the time but these rats stopped eating that means rat is in huge distress um, so that was for the pregnant mothers, and it was correlated with the time of the highest antigen expression, which is you know when they were in- injected, and then a few days later, the, the, the thing is working through their system. And then the, the babies were born with abnormalities. There were large numbers of abnormalities recorded in Pfizer study that was published later, and uh, Moderna's, Moderna, Moderna's data was never published. Moderna found that themselves in their own summary of regulatory documents. They found, they wrote that they had statistically significant increase in uh, malformations of the fetus, uh, the babies. They they were born with abnormal ribs, uh, wavy ribs, and extra ribs were growing, and that's a big marker of developmental problem. Uh, and uh, they that that data never came to light. They never published it. Uh, the, the data became available through freedom of information, uh, lawsuit uh, that Judicial Watch had to file an a lawsuit to get it only in um, April of this year. And as you know, throughout that time, the FDA and, and CDC were pushing this on pregnant women and FDA directly lied in Moderna's label. They said there were no vaccine related skeletal malformations uh, of the babies. And that was that was put on the uh, on the label into the regulatory history document, uh, and so so the FDA was directly lying on Moderna's behalf, covering up this data, pushing this on pregnant women uh, throughout, and they are still pushing it on pregnant women. Uh, and there they, still nobody has acknowledged that this is a huge lie, a huge violation. But we see in adverse events, we see. Uh, very large increases in miscarriages, uh, in stillbirths also, which is stillbirths is very, very, so miscarriages anything before 20 20 weeks of pregnancy and stillbirths everything after. And so stillbirths is extremely rare in the developed world. It's tiny, tiny percentages uh, that get, you know, the pregnancy was fine and then there's a stillbirth. And and that increased about five times now. And uh, miscarriages went, you know, hundreds of percentages up. And you can see all over the world, the birth rates have declined in perfect correlation with vaccination rates. So in those countries, and even in the UK, I saw a data set uh, recently, a very good analysis was done by socioeconomic groups in the United Kingdom. So like the the more wealthy ones tend to be higher vaccinated. Those declined by up to 20% in birth rates. And the poorer people who who have lowest vaccination rates, their birth rates increased actually. So you know what else do you need <laughs> as a proof like the all the all the Bradford Hill criteria have been met for all of this you know there's definite correlation with adverse events, and in case of the birth rates and abnormalities, we have definite correlation uh with the with the vaccination. Uh, but again, the, the, as I said, the, the, the regulatory bodies for, for this for health, they're not doing their job on purpose.
1: Just to be clear, just for viewers and listeners that might not know, the Bradford Hill criteria is um, the criteria that you would look at a drug and if it, if it meets one criteria or maybe even two of the nine criteria, I think it is, the drug would be immediately stopped without question. And this solution has met all criteria of the Bradford Hill um, criteria. So I just just wanted to clarify that. I think I'm right, aren't I, Sasha? I think I'm
0: right.
3: That's for the causation of effect due to the drug. Yeah. Yes.
0: Correct me if, if I haven't got this right, but I, I understand that even if animal testing doesn't produce any adverse effects, it does not automatically mean that a pharmaceutical product is safe for use in humans, that the, the animals, whatever type of animal is used, is only a relatively remote and approximate test vehicle, sorry to use that phrase, for, for whatever the pharmaceutical product is. And yep, if the animal is, is fine, that doesn't mean, say, that a human is gonna be fine.
3: Yeah, absolutely. The translation from animals to humans has always been a problem. And uh, in this case, I recently saw data that uh, showing that, for example, rodents are much more uh, tolerant of mRNA for, you know, there's an explanation for this, uh, that that the scientists provided. But uh, clearly, yes, because I also noticed that they were using human doses on the rats. um, And uh, and they seem to, you know, at least Large numbers of them survived, while well, there were side effects. But you would think that you know that there's a huge dose difference that would be there. But that's because the products are so novel; uh, nothing really is known, and nothing was provided by the um, manufacturers um, either. When I looked at the animal um, animal studies, they were very badly done. There were only few, maybe a couple, for each manufacturer that were done, even with correct test article and then they were not um, justifying the dose so we we have we always spent large uh, amounts of time doing the jo- dose calculation and dose justification for again as you said to, to translate from Animals to humans and then see what the range of the therapeutic window that we have, uh, meaning that we, we, we want to dose high enough to produce effects in humans and low enough so we don't produce side effects. Uh, and, uh, and there was not, none of that. There was no discussion of this at all. So they, it 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 seemed that they just randomly pulled this dosage out of the hat. And as you know, for Pfizer it's 30 micrograms of mRNA, for Moderna it's 100 micrograms for mRNA, and they seem to be extremely similar products and platforms. Uh, so why why is this like that? We don't know. But yes, it's it's impossible really, oftentimes to translate from animals to humans. The animal studies are only done and required to do to exclude major risks and to be certain that you are not going to severely harm people in clinical trials. So this is, you, you, you're you supposed to do animal studies up to you, up to your time that you're allowed to do a clinical trial in a very highly controlled setting. And usually we start in clinical trials, we start with literally like six people in the hospital ICU as, and and they're dosed one at a time. So we can like make sure that we're not harming anyone. And, and, and be able to stop at any point. Uh, this this was ridiculous what they've done. They didn't complete animal studies. They went straight into 40,000 people injections studies. This is nonsense with a completely novel product. So yeah, like I, I can't say anything really from animal studies other than they showed very severe risks, which would have been a, a, a stop, you know showstopper for any drug if if study like this came up from the clinical, uh, preclinical research, yet nobody seemed to care, notice, and in fact, FDA lied for them and then pushed all of this on pregnant women.
1: Sasha, we've only literally just scraped the tip of the iceberg, I know. And I'm super, super grateful for your time. And I know Brian's going to wrap up for us in a moment. But before, before we do, before we say goodbye, Headley, could I just ask you, what is going on i remember jonathan van tam on television saying he's got to buy every freezer known to mankind because mrna was on the way to the uk and it had to be stored at minus 70 what can you tell us Headley?
2: um to, to me it seems it seems obvious but you know a physician doctors gps they've only ever get a unit dose from the pharmacy delivered to them and all they have to do is either take a pre-filled syringe and administer that to the patient, or, or just draw a quantity out of a, a vial and administer that. That is because any change to a pro- anything that changes the product from one state to another has to be done under good manufacturing practice. So it has to be done within a quality system, and GMP is part of the quality. Good manufacturing practice is part of a quality system where you have to have standard operation procedures. People have to be properly trained in the in the procedures. They have to sign that they've been trained and they understand it. And only then are they allowed to say, you know, carry out an operation, mix something, you know, change something from one state to another. So um, when you ship um, vaccines, 195 doses, five doses per vial, uh, sorry, 195 vials, Five doses per vial, frozen down to minus 70, you know, into a vaccination center which has got no quality system, no one trained. Then that is a total violation of, of safety. You know, it's a gross violation. And, and just you know, when you listen to Sasha and what you observe, you think, well, yeah, you know, this is just one of a catalogue of of of, of Instances where safety is is ignored, and so I always use that one because it, that 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 example because you know if you had a car and it was delivered to a local garage and you know they said like you know you have to put the wheels on and fix the brakes up yourself but oh it's okay you know you find the instructions on the internet that's effectively what happened you say no way am I doing that I'm not going to get in that car but. You know, with the vaccines, you know, people without any experience were were, were doing the same thing. But if we go through all the regulations about you have to assure that you know your suppliers, your suppliers, suppliers up until the beginning so that nothing has been uh, uh, substituted, nothing toxic has been substituted into the supply chain. And we know with heparin in 2007, hundreds of people were killed and thousands had serious adverse effects because uh, Baxter, the company, sourced it from China, from a shadow factory that they, they sourced something that was a hundred times cheaper, and it was the equivalent of antifreeze. So, and because the, the company had purchased that, it was incorporated into the normal product. So, and people died, and, and in a case where you've got the scarcity now that we would have had with all these you know billions of vaccines, You know, that's an opportunist dream, isn't it? You know, oh, I can substitute this for that. And we don't know if any of these deaths or side effects could have been associated with economic adulteration somewhere in the supply chain. We just don't know because the whole traceability thing was ignored. No serialisation. So, you know, it's such a catalogue of disasters. It's hard to put it into words. So that's what I say, Debbie.
1: So are we saying they should never have been frozen then, Hedley? Well,
2: oh, absolutely, they were frozen because these vaccines are so unstable, um, that you know they couldn't have been um they, they couldn't have been um stored at anything other than those temperatures. And um I and, and one thing I want to say is that with the adenovirus vaccines they were at plus 2 to plus 8, so they would have been okay going into the supply chain. But the company that makes the adenorinus vaccine for AstraZeneca, Oxford Biomedica, they also supply the viral vector for Novartis's Chymria, which is a, a drug for blood cancers, and the labelling has very, very uh, stringent warnings about Uh, cytokine uh, release syndrome and neurological toxicities. So we already know these DNA vaccines have got very nasty side effects associated with them. And again, that's not being made public.
0: Fascinating uh, discussion. So Sasha, thank you very much for joining us and giving up your time today. I'm gonna say straight away, I hope you'll come back and tell us more um, I'm sure we'll have questions. Do you think you might be able to join us again in the future?
3: Yes, yes uh, absolutely I'd love to. and I, you know I can share more documents on screen if you'd like, but yeah,
0: that would be great. Thank you very much for that. And uh, Headley, thank you for joining us again. it's it's very it's very reassuring because you you come in at a completely different angle, but uh, the two of you are are absolutely building the evidence as to what's gone on here. So, Hadley, thank you again for joining us.
2: Oh, you, you're very welcome, Brian. Um, I, I have done an expert witness report for PGH Law when they were going to bring a letter before action against the MHRA, but that certainly didn't work. But, you know, I'm happy to give expert witness stations as, uh, as statements for anyone. What Sasha and I know is that the lawyers in the U.S., really are trying very hard to get an angle where they can manoeuvre around what Sasha described in terms of this whole thing is totally picked up and we're all desperate to do whatever we can to help.
0: And Debbie, thank you for bringing everybody together. Uh, it's been really excellent. Um, what can we do? We have to keep uh, spreading the word, informing people as to what's really happening and encouraging them to have the courage to stand up and say something and do something i'm sure that's starting to happen okay we'll leave it there a big thank you to our audience today for joining us